Today we are continuing through our series called Uncomfortable. Uh, that at times, uh, community and church, yeah, sometimes it can be comfortable, uh, but sometimes there's things that we put in place that are uncomfortable. Uh, that uh, we've been going through this idea and we're, we're going to be talking about what does it look like for us as a community to have unity? But sometimes unity uh, and doing life with other people can actually be quite uncomfortable. And that's where we put up this pew. So last week, uh, Trent brought this pew as even just this sign of, uh, and sorry, it's even more uncomfortable when you have your mic pack uh, that you're sitting on. Uh, but this idea of like uh, pews as like this uncomfortable seating. Now we get to sit in these chairs that are soft. Uh, you know, they're a little bit more comfortable. But I wanted to know, I was like, pew is a weird word. Has anybody thought that? Like besides like uh, the sound that a... Uh, Blaster makes on Star Wars, right? Pew, pew. Uh, what is it? Uh, what, is it what does it mean? Uh, and I was looking into the word pew uh, and where it actually came from. And pew, the word actually, it comes from uh, the Latin word podea, where we actually get the idea of a podium from. A podium, right? What a podium is, is it's like this place of honor. It's like this place of status uh, that if you were important or you were right in sports world, if you were a winner, you stand on the podium. It was this idea of actually being set apart. And pews didn't always exist. In the early church, that, uh, what church was, it was standing room only, right? People would come in and they would stand and they would worship together in community, right? All on the same level, uh, worshiping together. And, you know, maybe as like, maybe pastors started preaching too long, maybe people, their legs got tired, uh, they wanted to sit. Uh, So they're looking for church to be maybe a little bit more comfortable than just uh, standing. Uh, So this is actually where this idea of pew came in into church. Pew uh, was actually reserved for people of high status, Pews, pews were actually uh, a place where people would actually pay for them. That people would actually buy a pew, and what a pew was is it was usually actually elevated above others, sometimes a few steps, sometimes it was actually uh, fenced around, right? It had like a little bit of a border to actually separate people, right? That those of high status, they said, ah, I don't want to stand amongst everybody else anymore. I want to sit, and I want to be comfortable, but as I sit, I still want to see above everybody else who's standing, Right, that pews actually became a status symbol. That it actually was like the status or the symbol of division within church. Uh, that's what it became. It was like this. This uh, it was a division and status. Right, it was almost like if you're at the Flames game and you're sitting in one of those boxes, right, like a box seat. Right, it was like you're set. You've got like any, everything handed to you. It's like set above everybody else. Right, uh, it's like for the status symbol. And I know that you know we're all just sitting together in these chairs, that it's not really the same as what it used to be, you know, like pews being uh, this uh, separated thing, but we're actually all together. Um, But the thing is, I think we sometimes get this idea of like, not necessarily status, but I think we can become very comfortable in our pews, in our seats. And Trent, uh, a couple weeks ago, we said, uh, those of you who who, uh, here grew up with pews, right? And you got people to put their hand up. Maybe let's do it again. Who grew up sitting on pews? Right? And then he said, and that's how we tell who all the old people are. Uh, and I had my hand up. So I was like, am I getting old? Like, maybe I, maybe I am. Like, I just turned 30. Like, maybe I am getting old. But I grew up in pews. Uh, and the church that I grew up in, you could tell exactly where people were going to sit. 
right? There were the regulars. In the church that I grew up in, it was similar to this. There's three sections, and I was like, okay, you know what? Uh, right there is where the Bushmen sit, would, would have sat. Right there is where the Jeskies. Right there is where the Hams would have sat. The Clausens would have been over there. Um, the Peterses would have been in the back, and my family would have been over here, and the youth would have been right here, right? People were used to sitting in the same seat. And there is nothing more uncomfortable than watching a new person walk in and sit down, right? Sit down in a spot that is reserved for somebody else, right? Even though it's not reserved for somebody else, you get this idea that it is reserved for somebody else. And there's like this moment of just like uncomfortable, like you're just waiting for there to be a confrontation, right? You're just like waiting. You feel the awkwardness. Even though you're not part of it, you feel uncomfortable. And then there's nothing more about like sitting in somebody else's spot, Uh, In our church, uh, most of the pews were like this. They were wooden, um, but there was about five rows in the back that were cushioned. And the cushion were reserved for elderly uh, or, right, seniors. And um, for some, and it was never labeled that, or I never had like a label on the side, but that was just common knowledge. And for some reason, I don't know why. Maybe my dad, he's in this part, maybe where I am, where he's maybe started to feel old. And he thought, it's my turn to sit in these comfortable chairs. Uh, And he went, and you know what? It was comfortable, right, for my butt uh, as I was sitting, uh, but incredibly uncomfortable as I was sitting in that spot, thinking that somebody is just staring me down, right? That I don't belong in this spot, right? It was uncomfortable. And I think sometimes, even within uh, church, that we kind of get comfortable, I don't necessarily think there's like this division uh, within church and the same idea as having pews as elevated, but I think we get uh, comfortable about where we even sit, right? That in, uh, even within here, I think we get, re- we get into our regular ideas and sitting in the same spots and joining groups that are comfortable, right? We sit in our regular seats. We talk to the same people. We join small groups of people that look like us, we have, who have the same culture as us, uh, same stage of life, same political view, similar intellect, same age, same interest, same wealth bracket. As much as we want to say that the status symbol of church is gone, uh, we still separate ourselves, uh, even though we're supposed to be unified. Why? And I think I fall into this all the time. I think I really do fall into this all the time, because at times, uh, it can be really uncomfortable to be around people who are different than us. It really can. It can be really uncomfortable to be around people who are different than us. It is easier to be people who are like us. When we're around people who are like us, we can let our guard down. We can feel comfortable, but sometimes we actually need to be uncomfortable to see God's unity at work. Sometimes we need to be uncomfortable to see God's unity at work. Uh, It can be hard to be people who are around people who are different than us, who see the world different, who are at different stages of life or have a different uh, colored skin or cultural background. And uh, I think even in this idea of social media and this idea of like having Facebook friends, and Matt made this joke a couple weeks ago, but I I said it first and then he stole it. So I'm going to say it again. Uh, But this idea of like, you know what? I think many of us would probably be better friends with each other if we weren't actually Facebook friends. If we didn't actually read each other's statuses and get this idea that sometimes we actually get to know uh, somebody's ideas and opinions before we actually get to know a person. Before we actually get to really know them. But yet, I still think we are supposed to do life in our differences. That's okay to be different. I think that was God's plan for the church. One that has uncomfortable unity. As you read in Galatians 5, 26 to 28, it says this, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. As one who has been unified with Christ in baptism, have put on Christ. Like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one 
in Christ Jesus. That is unity. Not that we all become the same. We're still different, but we're actually unified in Christ, that we actually become one. And I think this is even evident with Jesus as he is calling his disciples, right? As Jesus was calling the people to actually follow him, right? God with us called people to follow him, to become like him, but he didn't call people who are all the same. He actually called people who were different. And just to example this, I'm going to go through the life of Matthew and the life of Simon. Uh, these people were, were quite different, but yet Jesus called them to do life together. Matthew, tax collector. Simon, the zealot, right? Religious, that wanted to overthrow the powers of Rome and see God's kingdom come, the zealot. Right, so Matthew, he worked for the government. Simon hated the government. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a tax protester. Matthew collected revenue for, for the Romans. Simon rebelled against the Romans. Matthew was wealthy. Simon was working class. Matthew made a living taking advantage of people like Simon, and Simon made a living trying to kill people like Matthew. Despite these differences, somehow Matthew and Simon were able to remain connected. To remain connected. Uh, Jesus was creating a new body, one where every member had a role. Uh, in Christ, the barriers that separate us actually come down. But they still argued, right? So even this idea, Jesus called people who are different, you should probably guess that if people who come together who are different, what are they going to do? Argue. At some point or another, they're going to argue. So we have this scene uh, where the disciples are together, and we read in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, and it says, they began to argue amongst themselves of who would be, or argue among themselves of who would be the greatest among them. They started to argue, right? So even these people who are closest to Jesus, they're arguing, which makes me feel better um, because I'm like, okay, sometimes I argue too. Um, But at the very beginning of Christian community arises a seed of division, one that can bring death to the most flourishing of communities. And I think sometimes it's at our our human nature from the moment that we meet a person, uh, meet another, that we are looking for a strategic position to hold over them. And this is what's happening there, right? It's just like trying to place myself, where do I fit in the greater scheme of this world? Where do I belong, right? There are strong people and there are weak ones. If a person is weak, there's this idea, and just not all the time, right? But there's this idea that if somebody's weak, they can, they can play the victim and hold it against the strong. Or the strong can take advantage of the weak and hold it against the weak. Even though I see this discussion of who is the greatest, Right amongst the disciples, I'm like, oh, that's kind of petty. Right? Jesus was pretty clear, I love everyone. Right? It's like, you should know where you stand. Right? Jesus actually loves each one of you equally. Like, you're all loved. Like, why are you having this discussion? But I actually find myself uh, probably asking that question myself. Who's the greatest? And I think maybe each one of us have asked that question at one point and another. But who's the greatest? Where do I stand? And we've been going through a book called Life Together um, by Bonhoeffer. And he calls this act self-justification. That we are trying to justify ourselves, to understand where we are, right? We compare ourselves with others and condemning and judging others. We find our status, our purpose, our identity amongst the ranks of others. So here's the question. Who is the greatest? And as competitive people, Matt, uh, Matt Dick, uh, pastor, who's uh, on sabbatical right now, and myself, we've asked, the, we've asked that question between the two of us a lot. And now that he's on sabbatical, I feel like I can finally tell the truth. Uh, 
right? He doesn't have a mic. I've got the mic. Uh, and we've had many competitions over the years from working together uh, for a long time. Uh, and in these competitions, I know he hates to admit it, uh, but I think, like, I've got him beat in almost everything. Uh, when it comes to basketball, better basketball player. Easy. Uh, when it comes to golfer, it's me. Ping pong player, musician, probably even preacher. You know, I mean, maybe you can decide. Uh, and the one that he's most ashamed of, I'm a better mountain biker than him. Just, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Jokes aside, I think Matt's got me beat in almost everything. Uh, he's, you know, he's pretty gifted in a lot of things, except I do have him beat in disc golf and axe throwing. Uh, two obscure uh, events that I've got him, those are the things that I've got him beat at. Um, but even just this idea, right, all jokes aside, but in my mind, there's this easy idea of self-justification of where do I actually stand in this world? And I used to do this all the time when I was younger, right? It's when you actually wish other people uh, that they would fail so that you actually look better. Growing up playing sports, this happened all the time. That I wish that this team would, uh, yeah, I wish that this team would actually uh, fail so that we would win. Or I'd hope that their best player would get injured so that we had a chance to win. Uh, And I actually sometimes even thought that against my own team. That I was like, oh, I actually want this person not to score this goal so that I can have more goals than them. So that I can actually be better than them. And we get this idea that actually just goes through that all of a sudden we're not even just uh, thinking outside of ourselves. We're actually thinking within our own community, our own team. And I even remember as a, uh, right, a, as a young pastor, and I think sometimes it still kind of creeps in, of this idea of I want to prove myself. I want to prove myself. So when other people would speak, I would just be like, sometimes I'd almost celebrate when they didn't do things their best or that they would fail, that I'd be like, oh, I'm better than them. Even within, right, the church, working with fellow people, this idea of wanting other people to fail so that I am better, so that I know my status, so I know where I stand. I think it is so easy for us to fall into that self just to build my identity. This is a vice that we can fall into all too easily. And it's a vice that causes division and destroys community and destroys the body of Christ. So, how do we overcome it? We overcome it by becoming uncomfortable and putting uncomfortable practices in our life. And I think the first one is this. It is the uncomfortable practice of humility. And I am very much speaking to myself. Uh, If you ask my wife, I am very much speaking to myself when I'm talking about uh, maybe needing to be humble. I know it sounds crazy, but humility is probably one of the most uncomfortable things because it means actually looking inward, to actually look at herself, to see our weaknesses, and to actually confront them. Um, But somebody uh, who wants to create unity within community, right? We can't, uh, we actually have to think maybe a little bit more little of ourselves, says this in Romans 12, 3. Because of the privilege and authority God has given to me, I give each of you this warning. Do not think of yourselves better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. Right, this idea, do not think of yourself better than you are. Don't think of yourself better than the people who are around you. It's this idea of self-awareness, gaining self-awareness within a community that it's not about becoming an individual, it's actually becoming part of a community. Spending time with God allows us to have this level of understanding. Only once we recognize our sin, our forgiveness, and need of God, this allows us to see ourselves as not separate from our neighbor, but actually one and the same. We realize that we cannot justify ourselves and our own sins, but Christ has done that for us. It's a humbling experience that we can't actually justify those things for ourselves. That self-justification, where does it lead to? We actually need to find our identity and rest in God. 
that even Paul, right, the Apostle Paul, um, one who would be probably considered like one of the greatest as far as followers of Christ, right? In his letter uh, to Timothy, he says this. This is a trustworthy saying that everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Paul, the worst of them all. That one always got me. So I was like, I don't think he is, right? But this idea of this, where he sees himself in God, he puts himself in place with other people. Not elevated above, but with. He regards himself as the worst, no higher than anyone else. He has received the grace of Christ, which, just, which has allowed him not to think of himself as separate um, from the problem of sin, but part of it, like everybody else. It allowed him to see all as equals, right? All sinners, all forgiven, no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. When you humble yourself, you, get, you start to see others as equal, not competition. When you find your justification, what God sees in you, and not what others or yourself sees, you're allowed to see others not in the way that you see them, but the way that God created them. And in his book, Life Together, uh, Bonhoeffer has this quote, and I started off with just a small quote, and then as I started reading, it kept getting longer and longer and longer. Uh, So this one's a little bit of a longer quote uh, that I'm just going to read together with us. Uh, And I think there's just, uh, yeah, I just didn't want to eliminate it because there's actually some really uh, good stuff in there. There's some really good stuff for us to learn. So I'm just going to read it out, um, but this is what happens. This concept and this idea when we no longer find self-justification, but we actually find our identity in Christ, Uh, our life looks different. Our community looks different. And he says this now, and when he says he and brother, you can substitute, right? Uh, Sisters, uh, this is just from his book uh, that he's writing. Um, But anyways, uh, as he can allow the brother to exist as completely free person, as God made him to be, his view expands and to his amazement for the first time he sees, shining above his brother, the richness of God's creative glory. God did not make this person as I would have made him. He did not give him to me as a brother for me to dominate and control, but in order that I might find above him the creator. Now the other person, in the freedom with which he was created, becomes the occasion of joy, whereas before he was only a nuisance and an affliction. God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to fit me. That is in my own image. Rather, in his very freedom... From me, God made this person in his, his image. I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. That image appear, or always manifests a completely new and unique form that comes solely from God's free and sovereign creation. To me, the sight may seem strange, even ungodly, but God creates every man in the likeness of his son, the crucified. After all, even that image certainly looks strange and ungodly to me before I grasped it. Strong and weak, wise and foolish, gifted or ungifted, pious or impious, the diverse individual in the community are no longer incentives for talking and judging and condemning, and thus excuses for self-justification. They are rather cause for rejoicing in one another and serving each other, one another. Each member of the community is given his particular place, but this is no longer the place in which he can be most, success, or most successfully assert himself, but the place where he can best perform his service. In a Christian community, everything depends upon whether each individual is an indispensable link to the chain. Only when the, even the smallest link is securely interlocked, the chain is unbreakable. 
Every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also the strong cannot exist without the weak. The elimination of the weak is the death of the fellowship. And I think there's, there's some beautiful imagery in there where we all need each other. And I can really relate to that line of like, God did not make that person the way that I would have made him. Uh, can anybody relate? <laughs> I can. Um, but this idea of what does it actually look like for us to see people the way that God sees them? Not the way that I see them. Right? That we actually need each other. Every member needs each other. That in Christ, we are one. So that is it. The first one is this uncomfortable practice of humility. So we can see others the way that God sees them. Another uncomfortable practice, listening. What does it look like to listen? I'm not listening to you, uh, is a line that my daughter likes to use uh, when I tell her things that she doesn't want to hear, like it's bedtime, uh, or uh, no, you cannot have two desserts tonight, right? It's just like this idea, I'm not listening to you, and like looks away, and like it's like the little head nod too, like it's maybe sometimes the eyes roll back. Anyways, uh, whew, parenting's hard sometimes, isn't it? Um, but we may laugh at this and we say like, oh, you know, like the innocence of a child. It's kind of cute, but we think, I think at the same time, we actually think this way all the, the time. At least I do. Uh, and I don't want to, like, I don't do it in the same way, right? If like somebody's talking to me and I'm like, ah, I don't want to talk to you. I don't go, I'm not listening and walk away. Uh, but I think sometimes we're thinking that, aren't we? Where it's like, oh, I'm just looking for an out, right? I'm just looking for a distraction so I can actually leave this conversation because I don't actually want to be in it. Uh, that I'm not listening to you. Or we hear something, right? As somebody, especially when they're speaking of something that's different than either we believe or we don't agree with, right? Sometimes we don't want to listen at all. And other times we are listening, but we listen to respond. I'm going to quickly say something instead, right? This idea of listening to respond. But that's not really listening either, is it? In God's love, he gave us his word. And I think it's important, right? In God's love, he gave us his word, but more importantly, he gave us his ear. He listens. He hears us. He sees us. No matter what we're going through, God is compassionate and even more excited to get to know us than we are to know him. In the same way, the beginning of love for others is listening to them. I think often that we get this idea that I just want to contribute into the conversation. Sometimes it's hard just to listen. I actually want to contribute into this conversation. Uh, and then we, yeah, that we think it's our role, that we have the service to offer. But we forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Too often we offer talking when we should be listening. But those who can no longer listen to others will soon no longer be listening to God either. For love of God is love of one's neighbor. And I always thought that I'm good at listening. Uh, that I am partway through, I'm in the middle of my master's degree in, in counseling psychology. And I got this idea of like, that's the part that I'm going to be good at, is the listening. Right? There's lots to learn and everything else, but I'm gonna, I got the listening down. And as we started to practice uh, with fellow students, and I'm realizing I'm not actually as good of a listener as I thought I am. Right? As a Christian and as a pastor, right, I love to actually just interject and to pray, which prayer is good, don't get me wrong, uh, but to pray or to give advice or to give wisdom, right? But I actually don't actually spend enough time listening. Right? As a counselor, a counselor is a helper of people, not always by the advice given, but by the attention given. We should listen with the ears of God and when appropriate, speak the word of God. So I want to say that one again. We should listen with the ears of God and when appropriate, speak the word of God. 
When we do this, we actually get to know somebody as a person. We get to hear their stories, their backgrounds, their hurts, their joys, their struggles. We realize that we aren't so different after all. We start to see people not as opinions or lifestyles. We see them as fellow humans. Created in the image of God, we see them as equals in the community. Trent talked about this last week too, is our Mexico trip that we go with youth every spring break and how uncomfortable uh, that that trip is because it is incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, even Trent, the guy's got a bad back, so he's got like back support while he's driving. He does like these exercises uh, to be more comfortable, that it's uncomfortable, uh, that you're sleeping on floors, that sometimes it's hot, too hot, you're burnt, and then it's cold at night. Like it just, you just can't level out that it's uncomfortable. But one of the parts that is actually quite uncomfortable, maybe not physically, but socially, uh, is the vans. That we load into vans and we drive all the way down to Mexico, and sometimes you don't know everybody in your van. We guarantee students that they will know at least one person in their van to ease right their mind, but they don't actually know everybody in their van. It's 6 a.m. It's still dark outside. Uh, people get into these vans in the dark. Maybe they know one or two people who are sitting next to them, but they don't know everyone. And there's this uncomfortable feeling of like, who's in here? Will they accept me for who I am? Uh, Can I actually be myself? Can I be comfortable? Can I let my guard down? All of a sudden, we start driving. We get past High River, and it starts to brighten up. And you look around, and you realize that it's not just kids in the van. There's actually adults in here, too. And you're like, how do I relate to these people? Uh, Right? And you're just like, and I think it goes the adults, too. They're like, how do I relate to these kids? Uh, and there's this idea of this intergenerational piece that is uncomfortable. Are they going to like my music? Right? Are they going to shut things down? Are they going to make things less fun? And for the adults, they're like, am I going to have a headache? Uh, right? Like, it's this idea that it's, it's uncomfortable sometimes to be with people who are in a different life stage than you. But what I think is beautiful on this trip is that eventually, right, these leaders who are driving in the front seats that sometimes they actually make their way, not all the way to the back of the van because that's really uncomfortable, but maybe they go back one seat and they actually start to talk to the students. And maybe sometimes a student actually sits in the passenger side to keep the driver awake as they get to know each other. But that never happens on the way down to Mexico. But after time of like being in the van, being on build sites, getting to know each other, for sharing around the campfires that we have in the evenings where actually uh, youth are learning from the wisdom of people who are older than them. And, the, and the, the people who are older are actually learning from the excitement and the faith of younger. We're actually growing together and we're learning from each other. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. But all of a sudden, there's something beautiful that happens. That sometimes people, they go on years later, they get married, uh, but they invite people who are part of the, who are in their Mexico van, those, those leaders to actually be at their wedding. That these leaders actually disciple and mentor these kids afterwards. That there's one, and this is a literal story of listening, that there is a, one driver who had hearing aids so you know how old they are because they had hearing aids, right? Uh, I'm not going to say who it was, but they had hearing aids. And they developed a friendship with the kids in the van. But the kids in the back of the van wanted to communicate with him who was driving. So what he did is he took a hearing aid out, gave it to the kids in the back of the van so that they could still communicate and listen to each other all the distance of the van. I think that's just like a beautiful story of what can happen when we actually are uncomfortable uh, in differences and we actually find community. We find unity. One where we can grow and we can learn from each other. And that's why there's lots where I actually uh, miss that trip greatly uh, because of that community that it forms. And we look forward to when we can finally do that again. But the uncomfortable practice of giving your hearing aid to a kid, uh, no, this uncomfortable practice of listening 
of really listening to somebody. Next, the uncomfortable practice of helpfulness. What does it look like for us to be people who are helpful uh, in this journey of unity? Um, That I think a lot of our lives, um, yeah, we need to live our lives uh, where we actually live in a way that we are ready to be interrupted. We live in a way that we are ready to be interrupted. And I think when we do, I think our lives cross with people who are in need. That God actually sends us people who are in need. But far too often, we actually see our lives as maybe too busy. More important. And even as Christ followers, right? Maybe we're busy, we've got a bunch of stuff to do, that we're running a small group or we're serving in this area, that we've got a big schedule of how we're actually going to help people. But we, do, we create the schedule where we don't actually allow for interruption. Because maybe our, the things that we've got planned, planning this Bible study and doing this are maybe just more important uh, than being interrupted and helping these people. That it's hard for us to see outside of ourselves when we create this busy schedule. Even if the busy schedule is filled with good things. Even if it's filled with good things, but do we allow our lives room for interruption? to allow unity to occur in the midst of that interruption. Because far too often we can go about our day being quite busy, doing things that are of God, and pass somebody by. Right? It sounds all too familiar of the Good Samaritan story. Right? Of the guy who found himself among thieves and left in the ditch, and who goes passing by? The priest. Right? The religious people. They walk on by. What does it look like for us to live a life where we're allowing interruption? creating a pattern of interruption so that we can actually be helpful. Um, two Christmases ago, we had a pretty big snowstorm. Uh, and I remember we were in uh, the community of, of Legacy, which is like the last one they bring the snow uh, plow to, right? It's like new community. They're going to take their time to get there. Uh, I remember it's just like snowing, 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 snowing. And the beautiful thing, and I think we've all been there in the midst of a snowstorm, is the interruption. It's a forced interruption, isn't it? Because we can't go anywhere. We're stuck, right? My little CRV, it, it ain't making it out in that snow. Um, so what do we do? We live a life of interruption, right? We could go about and stay inside and just try to do the things that we need to do, or we can go outside and help a neighbor. And I remember going outside and, and starting to push people out. Unfortunately, the same Amazon driver for three days, uh, it was actually a different driver because one said, I don't, I'm not coming back, and then the other guy said, I'll do it, and then he got stuck in the same spot. Um, but pushing them out, helping. There's people out there with side-by-sides, uh, pulling people out. Uh, I was in our back alley. It was me and like three other people, neighbors, that I never actually had the opportunity to meet. A guy three or four houses down. A guy who was in the condos over here. They all just got together, different life stages, but actually had, what we had in common was actually the allowance for the interruption to actually help each other. When we help each other and allow for interruption, we actually allow for unity to occur. The last practice I want to talk about uh, is this, the practice of bearing burdens. Usually we avoid burdens, right? Burdens are a heavy load. Usually we avoid these at all costs. If we see a burden, we don't want to bear it, right? We don't want to sustain it. We want to avoid it. In a community, a person at some point or another, every single person, right, will become a burden. As a church, we must bear the burdens of others. We must suffer and endure each other. It is only when a person is a burden that another person is really a brother or sister. Not merely an object to be manipulated or avoided, but somebody to actually help. The burden of mankind was so heavy, right? We actually see the example of Christ, that the burden of mankind was so heavy that God himself came to be with his creation. 
to carry that burden, to carry that cross, carry the weight of the world, the weight of sin upon the cross, and in bearing with mankind, God remained with them, and they in God. God maintained fellowship with his creation in burden. But who do we carry a burden for? Right? The people who are next to us, the people who are closest in community with us, or maybe our small people in our small group, maybe we can carry their burden. But when, when we look at God, right, he says, beyond just the love of your, your neighbor, he actually says it's the love of your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. What does it look like to carry a burden of even somebody that you might have in, like differences with and struggles with? What does it look like to carry burdens? And quite often we even say this idea, right? Ah, I just don't want to be a burden. Has anybody asked that, this idea of like, ah, I just don't want to be a burden to others, so I'm just really not going to share with people what's going on in life. Um, But often we put ourselves above others, right? When we're like, oh, we're willing to actually carry the burden of others, but we're not actually allowed to be a burden of ourselves. We're actually putting ourselves higher than them. This has been a difficult week uh, in our community and my friendships uh, that we've experienced, uh, yeah, loss of friends or grandparents. We have friends who are experiencing mental health uh, struggles, and it is really easy just to be like, if you need anything, let me know I can help. If you need anything, let me know I can help, which is coming out of a good place, right? Of like, I actually want to help. I want to be there. I actually want to carry the burden with you. But even for myself, that this week was difficult for my family, Uh, that my son, um, who has Down syndrome, uh, got pneumonia, and he was in the hospital uh, this week hooked up to oxygen and NG tube and all that kind of stuff. It was a hard week. Luckily, he's home. He came home on Friday, so that's really good. Um, but people, people would ask me. They'd hear about it, uh, and they'd be like, hey, how can I help you? How can I help you? And for me, maybe it's my own pride or stubbornness. I don't know what it is, but there's just like that inkling of just saying, I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need help. Right, and right as soon as I started to do that, I started to put myself above others. Like, what does it look like? And I know that sometimes it's easier. Um, yeah, sometimes it, yeah, sometimes, sorry. Um, yeah, I think sometimes it's easier for us actually to carry other people's burdens and not actually allow people to carry ours. Out of maybe not wanting to be an inconvenience. But if we want to be a community formed with unity, right, we know that we, just, we also need to help carry other people's burdens, carry their cross. But we actually need to allow others to do the same to us, to see ourselves as equal, to see ourselves as both filled with a community of people who are burdens, Sorry to hear it, but you guys are all a burden uh, at some point or another. Um, but to also see myself, I am also a burden. We are one and the same. Right? Sometimes life is hard, but we actually get to do life together. It can be uncomfortable, but it actually creates unity in our lives. Um, Henry Nouwen. He is an, he's a Christian theologian, an author, a professor. Right? And in some senses, he's actually become this uh, spiritual mentor to me especially through difficult parts in my life. I've never met, the, I've never met him, um, but the words in the pages uh, have just brought me comfort in difficult times. I don't know if you've had books like that or authors or something like that where it feels like it's a, you've never met the person, but they're the spiritual mentor in your life. And Nowen is one of them. Nowen is a gifted intellect. He spent most of his life teaching at prestigious schools, Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard, divinity schools. He spent years finding his self-justification in the scholarly, in the scholarly world. Um, but in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, he says this. So here's another, here's another quote. It is easy for me to grasp in a world that is 
content, that contently compares people, ranks them as more or less intelligent, more or less attractive, more or less successful, it is not easy to really believe in a love that does not do the same. When I hear somebody praised, it's hard not to think of myself as less praiseworthy. When I read about the goodness and kindness of other people, it's hard not to wonder whether I myself am as good and kind as they And when I see trophies, rewards, prizes being handed out to special people, I cannot avoid asking myself, why didn't that happen to me? In a world in which I have grown up is a world so filled with grades, scores, statistics that consciously or unconsciously, I always try to take my measure against all others. Much sadness and gladness in my life flows directly from my comparing, and most, if not all, of this comparing is useless and a terrible waste of energy. That line, this idea of this comparison, it pins me against all others. It pins me against all other people. This question of who is the greatest among us, right? This question, what does it really lead to? And in Nowen and his experience, what it led to was pointless. It was useless. It never really answered the questions that he was looking for. If we go back to this verse in Luke, let's see what Jesus had to say about this argument. They began to argue amongst themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people. Yet, they are called friends of the people. But among you, it'll be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, But not here, for I am among you as one who serves. Right? Who is the greatest among you? It's the one who serves. Who doesn't think of themselves more highly than they ought, but one who actually considers us equals with each other. That are we actually doing life together? To get rid of that question of who is the greatest is one of the best things that we can actually do for our unity, for our community. It might be uncomfortable, but it leads us into God's kingdom. For all places, for Henry Nowen to finish his career, he worked in a care home for the mentally handicapped. There he truly found himself. He said this, For a long time I had sought safety and security among the wise and clever, hardly aware that the things of this kingdom were revealed to little children, that God has chosen, right? Those by human standards are fools to shame the wise. Henry Nowen found true community, true love, not in people who were like him, who saw him by his achievements, but people who embraced him because he was God's creation. No more, no less. He was humbled, recognizing there was not much he could offer them, but they had lots to offer him. And those words stick with me. Uh, They've had a powerful uh, impact in my life, this whole idea how often do we think that we have things to offer other people, but in this world where well, maybe we don't have so much to offer them, but what does it look like to look like in this world where maybe somebody else has a lot to offer me? We need each other in our differences. To humble, to humble ourselves, to think of ourselves not higher than we should, to recognize that we are all in need of God and we are loved by God. We are no different in that way. That the person sitting next to us, uh, to recognize that we must listen to each other, like really listen, to hear them out, to help each other, to allow room for interruption in our life and to carry the burden of others and let others actually carry our burden. 
Soon the world around us begins to unify. Not because people change into our ideologies or intellect, culture, or political viewpoints. The world looks different. Not because it changed, but because we changed. Changed enough to see people the way that God sees them. Enough to celebrate people's differences as equals unified by God. Right? And this may be actually uncomfortable. Letting go of self to be transformed not as an individual, but actually to be transformed in a community. We're not just an individual, but we are part of a larger community, faith community in God's kingdom. Back to pews. So pews were the symbol of status, right? This is uh, where the elite would sit, the ones who could afford it, the ones who didn't want to be amongst everybody else. But there was a grumbling. And arguments arose about these pews and these seating, the seating. And people heard it. The clergy heard it and they made a difference. So they got rid of these ideas of these pews of being status and they actually brought them down to the floor. They thought, okay, maybe not everybody needs to stand anymore. Maybe we can let people sit, but we're all going to sit on the same level. They're actually going to do life together. That pews are no longer the status symbol. What pews are is a symbol of being equal, being part of a community, no matter where you come from or no matter what your differences are. It was a move away from division to unity. For all to sit amongst each other and do life together, rich, poor, male, female, weak, strong, liberal, conservative, in Christ Jesus, we are all one and do life together. And maybe sometimes that means being a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe it means getting up from your regular seats and just throwing people off one Sunday and sitting in a different side or sitting in a different spot to maybe actually get to know people or jumping into a different like, small group to get to know other people who aren't necessarily like you, but when I think we do, we actually start to see something beautiful happen. Right? This form of unity, it might not be, it might be uncomfortable at times. It's natural to do life with people who are like us. It's comfortable. But if we want to break out of the natural and see the supernatural occur, we must move away from comfortable. We must move away from what is natural. And once we do, we actually start to see the supernatural kingdom in which God envisioned. As we embrace the uncomfortable, we start to see the supernatural at work. Let me pray. God, I want to thank you for this community of people who are different, that we're not all the same, that we actually have lots to grow and to learn from each other and with each other. No matter where we're at in our faith journey or life journey, that we all have something to offer. And God, I just want to thank you so much for this community, a place where we can actually grow despite our differences into unity because of you and who you are and what you've done. So Lord, let us see people the way that you see them, to humble ourselves, to actually see the world the way that you see them, Lord. Let us listen in the way that you actually listen to us, that we're actually able to listen to know what people's needs are so that we can actually help them. We can allow interruption, that we can help people in our lives, and God, let us be able to carry their burdens, to be there when life gets tough, somebody can't carry that burden on their own. We just want to thank you for the community that we don't have to. We can carry it together. And Lord, let us let go of our pride and allow others to carry our burdens for us and with us. That we are able to actually do this together, to pick up our cross in community and carry it together. And we thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for this community. Thank you for what you've done, the ways that you've changed um, yeah, our lives uh, because of the people around us that are different. So, Lord, I just want to thank you. Yeah, amen.
Yeah, even in our um, burdens, we stand in the goodness uh, of God to carry each other, each, each other's burdens and to allow ourselves to be uh, a burden. And this week, we felt a heavy uh, burden uh, that we lost uh, the life of a, as a dear friend uh, this week. Um, sorry, Carter, I think I've got a... Of Sharon Hoagie. <clears throat> Passed away this week, who's uh, yeah, a huge impact within our faith community, within my community, within my life. Uh, as I got the news uh, on Tuesday uh, of her passing, I was staring at flowers, sorry, <clears throat> even just on her mantle uh, that Sharon gave my wife for her birthday that week. Sorry. <clears throat> that Sharon, <clears throat> yeah, she had a huge impact. On our faith community uh, and uh, of our my own personal life, and I know that was the same for many. And she'll be deeply missed. <clears throat> She's left behind by her husband Dave, her kids Alyssa, Jackson, Max, and prayers would be appreciated for the family, uh, for all of those to be comforted by the difficult difficult news. And this is a message that we got from uh, Dave this week. We are all together, all the family, and despite our deep, deep, indescribable sorrow, we have peace. We are thankful for all our friends and family that have supported us with prayer and encouraging words and sentiment. We pray for Sharon to have peace and comfort that prayer has been answered in the most unimaginable way. So if we can, uh, even just the week, this week or this time or whatever, anytime that you think of the family, just to continue to uplift them and hold them in your thoughts and in your prayers. And right now, I just want to just even invite up our prayer teams. Uh, that we offer at the end of each service, and even as we talk about burdens, and it might uh, be something that's unrelated uh, to this, but if there's something going on in your life that you want somebody to help carry it with you, please uh, feel free, come forward, ask for prayer. And maybe this news, this has been a burden. It's been hard, as it has been on so many. It's okay, let's pray together. And I also want to offer this idea too, uh, if you wanted to come forward and actually just to carry the burden of our brothers and sisters of the hoagies, and you actually just want to pray for them, like, I'd even just want to maybe change things up a little bit and feel free to come forward and form a group of people and actually just pray for the family. Um, but just even just to continue to pray. Um, but you'll be greatly and dearly missed in our community. Um, but yeah, Lord, let me pray. God, we want to thank you for the Hoagie family as part of our community. And this is a very uncomfortable part of our community where you love somebody enough to mourn. God, thank you for sharing and the impact that she's had and her wisdom and her grace and her joy that's uh, filled our community for many years. And God, we want to lift up Dave, Jack, Alyssa, Max, and just in our prayers, God, we just pray for continued comfort. And this image is a mother hen uh, that you said, this mother hen gathers chicks under her wings for this protection and this comfort. We pray the same over the family. Pray for comfort. Pray for peace. And pray things in your name. Amen. All right, everybody have a have a good week. And we'll uh, yeah, we'll see you next week.
Thank you.